Amen. It's great to be back here. I think it's uh, been six months since I last spoke at Boogies, and it was a joy to be here. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks for your presence. Lord, Lord, I pray that you will renew our minds. Lord, we don't just want to be challenged in our seats, Lord, but we want to be transformed into the image of your Son. Lord, I pray that you will mark us with your glory all the days of our lives. Lord. Our eyes will open to see spiritual realities. Lord. We see you for who you are. You are the King on the throne. Lord. You are with us and you do all things well. And all God's people say, Amen. The title of my message this morning is called Goliath Seemed Easy. Um, you know, sometimes we are tempted to think that the most challenging battle that David faced was against Goliath. And we often say to one another, hey, face or giant, lah, face or Goliath. And we teach our kids in Sunday school about this. Even unbelievers know this term well. Um, it was a significant battle. But I would like to suggest to you this morning that Goliath was easy for David compared to what he had to face after that. And we know what a David versus Goliath battle means. David walked onto the battlefield, slung one stone, and Goliath was down. And then David easily chopped off his head with Goliath's own blade. And I doubt that David even broke a sweat. But here it is, compared to the persecutions and family turmoil that David has yet to endure, killing this giant was easier. Because you see, it's not always the Goliath issues in life that proved the most difficult for us. Yes, it was an important day of battle. Everyone was watching. But you have to understand that Goliath was an obvious enemy. He and David met on the real battlefield. And the goal was clear. You either kill or you be killed. But not so with much of David's post-Goliath life. Because for years afterward, David spent years on the run. His life was endangered by Saul. And Saul was not just David's king, but also his father-in-law. Facing a giant on the battlefield on a single day was easy compared with facing years of his own king making his life a living hell. Can you imagine your relative chasing you through the years, through the wilderness, with an entire army behind him? And David also brought huge amounts of heartache into his own life. And we watched later as David's family disintegrated. Um, there, was, there was rape, there was a coup, um, there was murder, and even shame seeped into his family. And who was to blame? David. His youthful battle with Goliath that probably seemed easier compared to the hell that David created as a result of his actions. And I realized, okay, that it's not always the obvious enemies, the clear battlefields that prove the most tiring for us, amen? It's the ongoing, subtle, little things in life that wear us down, the things that no one else sees, the toxic work environment, the broken marriage perhaps we feel trapped in, the rebellious kids that bring us heartache, the ongoing bondage and sickness, and most of all, the destructive decisions that we keep on making. And today, I want to bring us all on a journey with you through certain Psalms to see the journey that David went through. There were trials triggered by his own hand, trials which the Lord allowed for greater purposes, and trials that were a consequence due to sin. And very quickly at the start, I want to talk quickly about two occasions. First, trials by his own hand. And we know this very famous story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David sinned against the Lord and against Bathsheba and Uriah. It was fueled by pride, by lust, and not knowing the season that he was supposed to be in. It was a season in which the kings are going out for battle, but he was at home at rest. And the consequences were costly because Uriah lost his life, and the child that was conceived was taken away. And most people don't know this, but Bathsheba's grandfather, 
his name was called Ahitophel. And scripture says that he was one of the wisest men in the nation. Okay, the Bible says that his words were like the oracles from God. And he was one of David's closest advisors. But after this particular incident with Bathsheba, um, Ahitophel rebelled. And years later, he was the one who advised Absalom on how to destroy David. And you can see, wow, his life was in a very bad place. And next incident that I want to bring attention to was when David counted and numbered the fighting men. Okay? I personally feel that God deemed the sin David committed right here in 2 Samuel chapter 24 was far greater than what he did in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with Bathsheba. It was so bad that even Joab, his own commander, was so afraid to do it. When David said, hey, Joab, can you count the fighting men? Joab was like, no, no. He trembled, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3, he said, my king, my king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? You have to realize that Joab was not a man of God, okay? He was an unscrupulous man. He was a murderous man. But even he knew that fighting, that, sorry, that counting the fighting men should never have been done. All right? But even in the midst of all this, David was a man after God's own heart because the posture, the lifestyle of repentance was seen evidently in his life. And David was able to acknowledge that he sinned and repent when he had Uriah killed because all along, not just then, but all along, he was a man with a tender heart before the Lord and he treasured the gift of repentance. Yet you have to realize that this heart was not formed overnight. Even before he became king, the slightest gleams of error will make him broken before the Lord. I want to turn your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's an amazing account to read that when David intended to kill Nabal, you know Nabal, the fat guy with lots of stuff, right? And then uh, he insulted David and the man, and then he said, oh, let's kill him and his family. But the Lord stopped him by providing Abigail to, to stay his hand. And the first thing he did, the first thing David did was like, I bless the Lord. And he thanked Abigail for staying his hand. He said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this very day. This was a man who was like, Oh God, thank you so much. I almost crossed the line. Now I want to direct your attention to David's posture after numbering the man. We can see this in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. But David's heart struck him, or some versions say smote him, after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Do you know why this sin was so severe? Because it meant trusting in your own power. It meant allowing pride to seep in. Because for years, the nation of Israel had been so different compared to the other nations because it did not have a standing army. It was always God's grace and mercy and power which allowed them to win battles. But this single act was almost akin to um, David raising his fist to the heavens and saying, eh, forget about the covering of the Lord. I want to see how much power I really have. It was almost the same situation like when Saul kept Agag alive, which is why God's judgment was so severe. And it's quite interesting that this failure, this mistake of David was chosen as the last story of David's life. Okay? You can see it's the last chapter of 2 Samuel. But I think that this story is not meant to show uh, how foolish or how evil David was. Okay? I personally feel that this story highlights clearly why David was a man after God's own heart. Because after he counted his military army, the scripture says that David's heart immediately smote him. Significant, all right? This was different from his failure with Bathsheba. 
Because in that incident, it took a few days. It took a prophet, Nathan, for, for, to come and share the story. And David, like, wow, repented. But in this case, David seemed to realize it immediately. No prophet came to convict him. The law didn't smite him. He didn't even know what the punishment was. Or even if there was even going to be a punishment, his own heart smote him. And this is a man who has grown in grace. Amen? A spiritually growing person is not someone who repents less and less, but is somebody who repents more and more and more quickly. Amen? Not just sorry for the consequences of sin, but there's a godly sorrow birthed in your heart. And this was David who was matured and understood what grieved the heart of God. And he was not a perfect man. Far from it, okay? Far from it. But he was a man who has grown in grace. And David was not just convicted and grieved, but I think David's response revealed why he was such a remarkable man. And you have to realize that the reason God was, uh, um, dis- not discipling, but chastening Israel was because he was trying to show them, it is not your military might, it's not your economic might that is your security, but me alone. And this, this, uh, this is one of the main reasons why God says, right now, David, I'm going to give you three options. All right, You have to choose one of these three punishments. Do you want to have famine? That will be economic disaster. Do you want to have three years of that? Or do you have three months of losing to your enemies? That will be military disaster. Or do you want to have three days of plagues? And David, with his eyes open, said, I'd rather fall under the hand of God. Yes, it will be severe, but it was through God's hand that brought us to where we are right now. Isn't that amazing? He, he came to realize that, I realized that I'd rather be in God's hands than in the hands of man because of his loving kindness. Amen? And when you look at David, there was something unique about him. Okay. The question we need to ask is, what did David do whenever he was lost? I want to suggest to you that he always understood mercy. It is not so much what David did, but what he acknowledged that he could not do. Read the entire Psalms over and over again. David tells the Lord, I can't do this. Lord, you have to help me. You alone can rescue me. In Psalms 124, it says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Psalms chapter 62, he said, For God alone my soul waits. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. And can you hear what David is saying? He acknowledged it was the Lord who has preserved him all this while. It was the Lord's mercies that kept him safe. David did not pray, Lord, boost my self-confidence. Help me to believe in myself so that I may invoke all the strength within me to conquer every problem. Rather, again and again, David fixes his eyes on the Lord. He humbles himself and he prays for mercy as we should. Amen? Because mercy is at the heart of Psalms, for mercy is at the heart of God. Amen? In Exodus, we can see that the mercy seat is the final piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Because mercy, therefore, is the highest revelation of the nature of God Himself. And we read in Exodus chapter 25 that you shall put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give unto thee. Thus, the mercy seat covered the law, and this illustrates at least two important truths. First, mercy covers those who transgress the law. And second, before we can obtain mercy from the Lord, we must acknowledge that we have transgressed His commandments. Amen? We must acknowledge that we can't move on without the Lord. And mercy protected David on the battlefield. Mercy saved David when he wrecked his own life, when he wrecked his family's life. And we need to remember, but when we go to Him, His mercies are new every morning. Amen? Second, 
David always understood and welcomed the intervention of the Lord. I want to bring your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 12. After he sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba, we know that his son was afflicted and eventually died. But verse 18 is very interesting because it says, The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. He did not eat. You know, you know the scripture well. But how then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself harm. And the context of this that he was praying while the child was afflicted, he said, God, Please rescue him. Please rescue him. But when the child was taken away, the servants are like, wow, Jala now. Now he might kill himself. He might do himself harm. But verse 20, it says, David arose from the ground and he worshipped. Because David knew something that the rest did not. He knew how far his heart had been. But somehow on the ground, David saw two things which the people did not realize yet. First, there was a prophetic word about eternity. He knew that death was not final. Because he said, he will not come to me, but I will go to him one day. A second, he welcomed the surgery of the Lord. You know, when I read stories in the Bible, I realize that many times the Lord does not come to us with a sword for judgment, but a scalpel or a knife for surgery. You know, looking at the lives of Joseph and even Job and David and many more, and sometimes you have to realize that the Lord allowed things to happen to cut out, to remove the tumor that has grown in our hearts. Because after great success, David has changed from a king who served his people to a king who has started to make use of people. You can see in his, in his interaction with Joab, with Uriah and Bathsheba. And to be honest, guys, I'm still quite puzzled about the sovereignty of God. I don't presume to know why certain things happen, but David in his spirit trusted the mercies and the intervention of the Lord. And this might be hard to accept, but we must treasure the intervention of the Lord. Amen? Because the last thing we want is for God to say, I don't want anything to do with your life. Let your will be done. Amen? And I see the intervention of the Lord um, akin to him being the wise baker. Okay, let me just give you this illustration because you do know that ingredients on their own do not taste good. Many years ago, when I was still a young chap, <laughs> I went to, you know, Poon Huat, the bakery. <laughs> Sin, uh, Simei, there's a Pun Huat. So I went to Pun Huat. I was like hungry. Uh. I don't know why you go to Pun Huat and you're hungry, but I don't know. I was young and poor. <laughs> I went to Pun Huat. Then I saw this bottle of uh, vanilla extract. I thought, wow, sounds good, right? I thought it's, it would be like vanilla ice cream. So I brought home vanilla extract. How many of you have tried vanilla extract before on its own? Please try. Uh. Very good. <laughs> but I tried. Uh, wow, horrible, okay? It's so horrible, all right? I want to say that vanilla extract on its own is terrible. But something which you despise originally suddenly takes on meaning when the chef in his wisdom graciously mixes everything together and heats everything up. And it illustrates the redemptive work of Christ. And God is saying that I'm going to demonstrate that all things work together for good for those who are caught according to his purposes. Do you know the story in Genesis about Joseph? Okay. I, sometimes I do wonder this. Have you ever wondered, what if the cupbearer remembered Joseph? What if the car, car barrel went to Pharaoh and said, oh, this guy's solid. No, he gave me, he interpreted everything and he's a wise guy and yeah, you should set him free. And then Joseph would have been a freed man without an assignment. Amen? But God in his wisdom knew the right time. And next, he trusted the king. David, all the days of his life, trusted his king. And I want to bring your attention to Psalms chapter 3. 
The context was Absalom, his own son was after him. And verse 1 to verse 3, it says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are sure about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The Psalms are very real. It reveals how David at different seasons of his life was besieged with fear. But it shows that you can pour them out in the presence of God. You can process your emotions, your feelings before the Lord there because the the Lord is not stumbled when we are honest with Him. Amen? And there's a secular worldview that holds on to the sovereignty of feelings. What do I mean by this? It says that your feelings is who you are. And the religious view says that you must deny your feelings. Don't even entertain them. But look at the Psalms. We can see that the Psalmist does not deny his feelings, yet he was not consumed by them. And David's found a way of praying his fears. And fear is probably the most primal of all emotions. But in verse 2, we see something insightful because it says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. And this means that they're not just attacking his body, but his identity. They're attacking his calling. And because of his sin with Bathsheba, enemies, uh, David's enemies are looking upon his dethronement as like the will of God. They're saying that, oh, you don't... David... No point praying. Lah. God will not save you. God will not deliver you. Because of your sin with Bathsheba, nah, nah. This entire insurrection, this entire rebellion is from the Lord. And David is not just being attacked physically, but psychologically, amen. He was so attacked in his mind. But verse 3, I'm so grateful for verse 3. It says, but you are a shoe about me. Notice he did not say you are a shoe to me. That's not what it says. Because there's a kind of little shoe that you put on your hand. You attack, you block, you attack, and you block, right? But, According to context from scripture, this is not the kind of shoe that David was talking about. Because uh, the, the shoe that David is talking about is huge, it's bigger, it's, it looks like a door, right? And, and, um, and, and you've probably seen it in movies or documentaries. And when do you use a shoe like that? You only use that kind of shoe when you are following your general or your king to go besiege a fortress. You only use that shoe when you're going into incredible danger. And this shoe is not a shoe that keeps you from danger but it's a shoe that goes right into danger. And, and this, David's not saying that, I know you won't let bad things happen to me. He says, I'm scared. He says, Yahweh, I'm scared. And I know you often take me into danger, but your shooting, your protection only works going forward. It only works when I'm obeying you. I know no matter how bad things are, you are going to turn things around, you are going to shoe me. And sometimes we are tempted to run away. We think we're having the small shoe and then we just run away. And the Bible is so real because it reveals that obedience to God is tough because sometimes He will take you to places that you don't understand. But David is saying that no matter what I'm going through, I'm going to go forward with my king because I trust in him. Amen? Fourthly, he beheld at all times. Psalm chapter 27. In Psalms 27, it's really clearly talking about the worship, the adoration by an individual. In the very center of Psalms 27 is verse 4. It talks about the one thing I ask, the one thing I seek. And here's the one thing I crave from Yahweh, the one thing I seek above all else. I want to live with Him every moment in His house, beholding the marvelous beauty of Yahweh, filled with awe, delighting in His glory and grace. I want to contemplate. I want to inquire in his temple. And David was not going to the temple in petition asking for God's help to change his circumstances. He's going to the temple of God asking for God himself. He said, if I have that, I'll be able to face anything. Because you have to understand this is important, but you know the context of this psalm, okay? 
is incredible. And this psalm was written by David when he was pursued by Saul after Doeg, the Edomite, had betrayed him. D-O-E-G. I used to pronounce Doeg, but very rude. Okay, Doeg, okay. And David talks about two horrific, disastrous possibilities. I want you to stay with me right now. In verse 3, he says, Though an army encamp against me, in verse 10, he says, Though my father and my mother have forsaken me. And what is David doing? He's revealing the spectrum of human turmoil. On one hand, there's no greater external devastation to your physical and material well-being than to have an army come against you, to destroy you, to attack you, which is something that David did face. And on the other hand, he said, Though my father and my mother forsake me. And David right here is talking about the foundational relationships of your life, your spouse, your children, your parents, your loved ones. And many of us, okay, to be honest, we, most of the time we get overwhelmed when our family life gets attacked. There's a fracture in relationship. There's, there's some attack in the family line. And it's one of the most intimate forms of relationships. And David is saying, should the greatest possible exterior attack happens or should the greatest possible internal pain and loss happen to me? Should both of them happen to me? In other words, should, should I face the worst things that a human can ever face? If I have this one thing, I'll be all right. And that's the message of this psalm. He says, I can be at rest. And notice in verse 6, he says, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around, and I shall offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. He's saying that I would love it if the Assyrians come and attack my enemies. I would love it if my enemies would be dispersed. But even if I was totally surrounded by the worst possible devastations, if I have this one thing, my head will be lifted up. Amen. I want to say that to gaze on his beauty without seeking to do his will will never work. Okay, because this is not just a doctrine or a scripture or a formula that you memorize. It's supposed to be a developing of an ongoing lifestyle of a consciousness of the glory of God, a consciousness of the abiding of the Holy Spirit. And I don't just want you to be trained to be devoted and yet not be captured by the beauty of Christ because you will become religious in your habit, all right? So do not stop short your divine encounter just because you are satisfied with good theology, but seek to taste and see that God is good. Amen? And in all seasons, you pitch your tent in anticipation to his entry. Do you remember um, blind Bartimaeus? Okay. He knew that Jesus was going to come by a particular road. So he pitched his tent there because he knew that Jesus will meet me. All right? He just cried, Lord, have mercy on me. So you pitched your tent on the road that Jesus will definitely come down. And that road is the road of obedience and worship and abiding. Amen? I want to turn your attention to one final psalm, Psalm chapter 13. Because when you learn to be whole, you learn to trust. And it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the days? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And in verse 3, David says, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And many times, we want the Lord to provide us a solution. We enter into his presence just for an answer. But I think, all right, sometimes God is teaching us to trust him, not with the lights on, but with the lights off. 
You know, uh, my eldest son, I think he's turning four soon. No, I think. I know he's turning four soon. Uh, Juju, uh, his name is Juju, okay? There was a period of time he only could sleep with the lights on, okay? And we obliged because he was like two years plus. That was last year. So we keep telling him, hey, Papa, Mama, next room. No danger, no danger. Okay, but we obliged. Lah. So we let him sleep for a few days with the lights on. But eventually, he learned to sleep with the lights off. If Juju turns 18 or 20 and this is still going on and we've got a major problem, I will ask Pastor Wiling and Pastor Pehan to help me. <laughs> so, Bro, you need help. <laughs> Sorry. But some of us, the Lord is teaching us about trust. Amen? The Lord is teaching us that in the middle of it all, He's been saying, I've been coming to teach you to live with the lights off, not with the lights on. Because anybody can sleep with the lights on. It is when it's darkness when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Amen? So you are fixed on the one who is the father of lights. James says this, in whom there is no variation, neither shadow nor turning. And we need to bring our joy and our emotions underneath the jurisdiction of God's character and his purposes. Amen? Corey Tamboom said in one of her devotionals, he said, sometimes it's dark because he's so close. Sometimes it's his nearness that causes things to be out of focus. You have to realize that it's trust and obey. It's not trust then obey. You have to realize this, okay? Our trust doesn't begin when our doubts end. We obey and continue to trust even when we cannot see. Because it's trust and obey because there is no other way. Amen? I want to share a personal story. Uh, I think since last year to this year, me and my family, we've been contending for a breakthrough. Um, just really something ha- happened in our family. And like I mentioned, usually when something happens in your family, you're quite distraught, right? So we're just praying for a breakthrough. And then uh, because I'm a shepherd and a pastor, I, I did what I thought I knew what to do, okay? I did all the spiritual disciplines and ordinances. I, 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 you can ask myself, we fasted dinner every night. So there was fasting. We did prayer walk like three times a week. And we did all this. But I did all this, but my heart was not at rest. There was no surrender. There was a lot of striving. I remember sometimes, right, we, like, me and my wife would not eat. and We would not even talk. We would, we would not even pray. We were just like going through the motion. I don't know. Maybe you guys are very holy, but that was me. So I was just striving, and I think, like, God, this will please you, right? I mean, just give us a solution, give us an answer. But I remember very clearly that a few months ago, on this very year, on uh, 4th of September, it was a Sunday, and, um, and Heidi Baker was in town, and he was just doing a series of messages and services. And then she preached a powerful message. I was helping as an author worker. And I also was uh, helping to host the lunch. Lah. So um, I had to make sure that the, the, the food was okay. And then I had to go to the pastor's lounge to invite them to go for the lunch. Then I went into the pastor's lounge. Everyone has left already because you know how Heidi Baker meetings are. Right? And then I went to the pastor's lounge. And then Pastor Young and Pastor Daphne were on the floor like crying and laughing. And the presence of God was so rich. And Heidi was there on the floor. And then he said, come on in, come on in. I'm like, lunch is ready. She said, come on in. <laughs> Encounter the Lord. And I, wow, I was a bit nervous. Like, oh. And then I went in and she touched me. And I went down, boom. And it seemed like very long to me, but I think it was only minutes, all right? But I really encountered the weight of His glory. Right? I, he spoke to me. He like, 
showed me my entire journey for the past two years. He showed me my striving. He showed me all the things I did. And I could not move on the floor. I was just no strength. I was on the ground. Okay. And then I, he asked me two questions. The first question he asked, can you do anything right now? Do you have any strength? I said, Lord, I like it's like the prophets, Lord, only you know, but it's like, God, I have no strength. And the Lord said, I want you to remember this feeling, how, how you cannot do anything of your own strength. It's only by my grace. And then he asked me the second question. He said, do you believe that I love your family more than you? I said, oh God, yes, you do. I surrender all. I will not strive, Lord. I surrender. I behold you right now. At that point in time, I could move. And immediately, Heidi grabbed my arm. She turned to me and she said, you have looked after the families of other people for so long. And God says he will look after yours. And then I stepped up of that place. You know, in my entire journey, I've, happy things happened to my life. But nothing so close to what I just encountered. Because the voice of God said, you have been marked with the glory of God. And since then, every day I say, God, please mark me with the glory. Mark me with the glory. Mark me with the glory. You know, sometimes when we enter in the presence of God, three things happen. We want God to provide a solution. Sometimes it happens. Second, sometimes He gives us a fresh revelation of who He is. But sometimes He does, don't do that, but He reveals what He's doing in our inner man. That He's molding us. And I want to say that when you encounter God, don't, when you go to altar call, when you meet your friends, when you hear about the encounters with God, do not compare. Because different hearts require the different spectrum of the glory of God. Amen? The glory of God is massive. And when, he, he, when he met Martha, he gave her, when he, she said, Oh Lord, my brother, if only you've been here, Lazarus will be alive. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. That was what she needed. But moments later, Mary said the same thing. Lord, if you were here, my brother would be alive. And Jesus said, Jesus didn't say anything. Jesus just wept. And he's a man of tears and truth. Because different hearts require different encounters of the glory of God. And I just want to say to you that God will meet you where you are. Amen. Amen? That all the days of your lives, that you can come to a safe place where you can inquire in His presence. Because God doesn't give us tools to deal with our circumstances. Guess what? He gives us Himself. Amen? I want to invite all of us to stand. Can I just get the worship team? And I want us to respond. I want us to worship the Lord. Uh, but I, I was just reminded of this story a few days ago when I was just reading Second um, Samuel again. I've been reading Second Samuel Psalms and Gospels back to back because wow, it does something to my soul. And you all know this story that um, David, after he was crowned king, he came to this realization that I want to show grace and mercy to the line of Jonathan. Okay, so he asked his servants, "Is there anyone who is still living uh, that the sons of Jonathan? Is there anyone that I can show grace?" Okay, they said, "Oh, there's one, there's one, Mahibusheth, but he's crippled. My king is crippled." And David said, Namai, Namai, let's let him come to my table. And all the days he'd been eating the king's food. That's with the king. Creeper. 
And then when Absalom came, you know, the insurrection, you know, the, the rebellion came. And then um, the, the entire city, the entire palace was in disarray, chaos, right? And then um, <laughs> Mahibosheth's servant betrayed him. And he went to the king and get food and said, I'm here, king. And then the king David said, where's your, where's your master, Mahibosheth? He said, oh, he betrayed you. Only I'm here. Then King David was like, wow, that's, all that he has is yours now. But at the end, when the victory was, was received, when David was victorious, he came back. And then Mehibosheth, his hair all uh, disheveled, messy, broken, he came, I think when I walked, so I don't know, crawling to King David. He said, Master, Lord. And David said, Why do you leave me? Why do you betray me? He said, No, 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 no. My servant betrayed me. My servant betrayed me. I didn't know what was going on. My servant betrayed me. And I think King David was not in the right mind to, 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 to render justice or fairness. He would just say, um, um, okay, okay, all that, all that I gave your servant, I give to you. Lah. But, but Mahibosheth said this, you don't understand. He said this, my king is here and that is enough for me. I don't care about fairness. I don't care about justice. I don't care about gifts. He said, my king is here. I'm contented. I just want to say that in the days of our lives, that we will behold him. That we say, oh, my king is here and that is enough. I know that all of us, most of us, we have encounters issues, the valley issues of life, troubled by family, by work. But come to a place where David said that you are a shoe about me. And I want to give us a chance for us to respond as we worship if you find it Lord I just want to come to this place I do not yet understand or I might understand but I want you to mark me with the glory of God I want to behold you all the days of my life so do not worry who lay hands on you do not, do not care what issue you're going do not care what encounters someone on the left and right have you say God right now I want to worship all the days of my life please come on down I may, I may or may not pray for you, but just behold the Lord wherever you are. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.